Welcome back to another episode of Establishing Shot. We're here in the Browning Cinema at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center on the campus of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, my name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director here at the Performing Arts Center. Joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Ricky Herbst. Hi, Ted. Hi, Ricky. Hey. Ricky is our cinema program director extraordinaire, <laughs> as, as is evidenced by all of the great things we have coming up in I, November. I petitioned HR. It's on my title You've now. Added, is, have they, extraordinaire. Did, did, yeah. they, did they get the extraordinaire? It's like getting the Monsignor. That's right. Like Esquire. It's better than an Esquire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so we've, we're going to talk about um, just what's coming up uh, and then uh, get us thinking about it's November. It's We're definitely feeling a chill here on campus now. Um, you know what we're uh, what we're anticipating. This when it gets colder, it's a good time to st- uh, start watching more movies, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we've got a lot of choices to make. So um, maybe we'll start off with uh, what we have coming up, beginning of November. Do you want to start there? Sure. Uh, well, we have um, we have the continuation of the RKO series that you have been right. uh, uh, putting forward this semester. Kind of and the conclusion, actually, of the arcade. Right. So we're heading out of the, we're ending the 40s, getting into the 50s, and then jumping to the 80s, right? This is just the sort of bizarro phase of RKO. So we have, right. we're kind of coming from, so uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about what we have coming up. So we have on uh, November 1st, kind of the high point uh, for the studio, which is the best years of our lives, uh, November 1st. Um, and this, is that their only best picture? Um uh, oh, 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 good question. Uh, no, Cimarron. Cimarron. Oh, right, yeah, right. Cimarron, which we actually didn't. Uh, Often overlooked. Yeah, 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 That's right. And I know this because, and this is, here's a little bit of a brag. I went to their studios in New York, mm-hmm. and they have two Best Picture Oscars in, in just a conference room, and I get to hold the Oscar for the best years of our lives. Oh, wow. Yeah, and but the, the, but the two are, it's Cimarron and that, and nobody wants to hold Cimarron. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> best Years of Our Lives has much more. Import. So it's a, you know, a really a film that um, just continues um, to have incredible impact, documenting the experiences of soldiers uh, coming home from the war, kind of situated within a family melodrama, um, but just kind of works. Do you know by chance if this film was used ever when people were coming back from Vietnam or the Gulf War? It seems to be something that. As like kind of like a therapeutic kind of yeah. thing. I don't think so. I don't think people think of it that way. I mean, I think they, and they also, I mean, because maybe because those those war experiences are seen as so different from, right. from what people went through in World War II. But but I'm sure there's you know a lot of parallels in terms of just you know that that process of readjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mentioned the you know the Vietnam War doc before that that Ken Burns did, and there's a I was watching some of the side materials about it. One of the fascinating things is. These sessions or these these um, groups that get together of the guys who served in Vietnam with the guys who've served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who are kind mm. of a support, mm-hmm. kind of mutual support group for each other. It's really quite powerful. Um, you know, this generation. I mean, sadly, this generation, the folks who have, you know would have served in World War II, a lot of them are gone now. So, um, you know, they're, they're probably not as much of a presence. But but I think it's a film that you know just really beautifully captures kind of where things were. At that at that moment in history, and interestingly, it was so RKO had these relationships with independent um, companies, uh, independent production companies. This was actually produced by Sam Goldwyn's company, um, who also did Ball of Fire, which we showed earlier in the semester. 
Um, and despite it being a huge, huge success, RKO ended up losing money on it because the distribution deal was so unfavorable that they, they couldn't turn a profit. So huh. even though it's a it's one of their big successes, even you know it's considered one of the big successes of um, you know film history, both critically and commercially. So. So that's coming up, and then we then things get a little strange. We go uh, to uh, well, no- another war, November eighth, yeah, Stromboli, which is you know this is after Howard Hughes has taken over RKO, so things start to get a little bizarre um, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of you know what projects are moving forward and just how things are being managed. In Stromboli stars Ingrid Bergman, directed by Roberto Rossellini, a film that has a lot of lore around it because this is when. Their relationship really developed, their their off-screen relationship. Um, she became pregnant while she was married to another man. Uh, she was condemned on the U.S. Senate floor uh, as a result of that. Um, you know, so a little bit of a, a little bit of a scandal uh, surrounding uh, Stromboli, which over you know kind of overlooks the fact that it's actually a really beautiful and affecting um, kind of war film made. You know, that that still kind of captures the experience of the war or just the that aftermath of the war. Because she's, you know, she's married to a soldier who's just finished his service, and then they're they've gone off to this strange remote island where he uh, grew up, where it's just a kind of unforgiving space. But um, this is, I mean, for me, this is one of my favorites of this of this period. Um, it's a film that's it's, but it's a hard film to embrace because so much of it is about, you know, Ingrid Bergman not adapting to this space on this island, this kind of unforgiving island where mm-hmm. she lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that can be, you know, for some viewers, I think kind of an unpleasant experience kind of watching her struggle with that. But, um, but I think it's, it's incredibly effective. It has, this, uh, it has this amazing tuna fishing scene in the middle of it that goes on for like 15 minutes where you just watch, <laughs> you know, tuna fishermen. But yet it somehow is, is a projection of how, you know, how her character is struggling. So, um, so not not really reflective of what RKO was doing overall. This is really more of an anomaly. Um, I mean, the, RKO was working with a lot of international directors. So this is directed by Roberto Rossellini. Um, they had also, you know, pri- previous to this, worked with Hitchcock, worked with John Renoir. But in those cases, they were, you know, they were largely working in Hollywood um, and kind of within within a bit. You know, within a more con- kind of constrained atmosphere, this is you know this is shot on location, um, and kind of marks uh, really you know Rossellini had had a huge success with Open City, um, you know when it was distributed in the U.S. So there was high hopes for you know the studios to start to work with him more directly. And then this when this film came along, um, it just kind of dumbfounded people who didn't really know what to make of it. So um, so it didn't you know it kind of ended his. Very brief uh, career working and working with uh, Hollywood studios. So, and that's and then you know as when, when we're going through the course, we're going to at this point kind of talk about the end of RKO, which you know as a kind of the one of multiple ends of RKO, one of multiple <laughs> ends, right? So you have the you know as in terms of it being a you know major Hollywood studio, it's also the studio system is starting to fall apart, but RKO is really right. the first studio to be the, a casualty of that. Um, because they, you know, they essentially go into uh, Hughes. He, Howard Hughes runs the studio up through the mid '50s. He sells it off, um, and in event, and it just in those last couple of years thereafter, there's just really nothing, nothing significant. And then everything pretty much gets sold off to television. 
So it kind of goes away, and then there's an attempt to re-launch uh, RKO in the early 80s, uh, mostly as a uh, production company. So it's interesting because their prior model was that they were uh, a distributor for other producers. In the 80s, that kind of shifts, and one of the films that comes out of that is this very uh, interesting, strange, um, commercially successful uh, collaboration with, um, I think it's with Universal, uh, the best little whorehouse in Texas. Cameo Award nominee. Was it really? Mm-hmm. For? Uh, best Supporting Actor, I think. For Durning? Mm-hmm. Charles, Charles Durning. Yeah, that a, makes sense. A nod. That sense. That's right. Okay. Not National Treasure, Dolly Parton. <laughs> I was going to say, like, did you know, what about Hard Candy Christmas? Was that nominated for Best Song? I don't think. I, I don't think. Not an nope. original song, maybe? Because um, it's from the original. That's true, from the musical. Show. That's right. That's right. So you, I guess that's the, the rules on those songs. But, um, you know, the unlikely pair of Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton, uh, who, uh, you know, you know, kind of, uh, the show had been a big success on Broadway, and, you know, their attempt to interpret that as, as a film is. Uh, kind of fascinating, strange. Um, we're excited to show it because this is a film that's kind of largely gone. It's it's largely been forgotten, even though it was quite a big deal in its time. Um, you know, but uh, we'll see how it goes. And it's one of the, I, for me at least, it was one of those both a, a VHS uh, tape you'd see in movie theaters, yeah, and a picture of former performances at civic theaters. Like from ten years ago, uh-huh, uh-huh. like whoa, they did something that had whorehouse in the title. <laughs> like, it <was laughs> right, really, right, it right. seemed extra lurid, right? And it was, um, yeah. The yeah. title's a bit misleading, I think. If you're if you're expecting if you're expecting more explicit content within the <laughs> right. film, right? right. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's interesting. It's not it's not something that's kind of in that evergreen uh, catalog of of shows that that civic theaters or high schools do these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of it's kind of been forgotten in that way. Maybe it just doesn't work. But um, but at the time, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was very. Uh, I got a lot of great attention. So that's um, so that's. There's a couple of other films that are produced by RKO in the '80s, and then it and then um, it kind of fizzles out, um, and then gets taken over uh, by uh, Dina Merrill, the actress, uh, and and her husband Ted Hartley uh, purchased the company, um, and they have kind of sporadic uh, attempts to relaunch the studio or to re- – it still exists. And they, and they and, and um, Dina Merrill sadly passed away earlier this year. Um, but Ted Hartley is still uh, in, uh, the, the president of RKO. Um, they've been somewhat sporadic in terms of, you know, films that have been released, attempts to adapt their material. But it's been um, – but there's still uh, – one of the things that's really exciting about RKO is that they still own all of their original – um, scripts and materials, so they've got a really rich um, uh, catalog to draw from. So it'll be interesting to see where they take RKO going forward, because there are plans to kind of continue RKO well into uh, the next decade and beyond. So be, we'll, be, we'll be watching to see where they go. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wraps up, that'll wrap up our series uh, that we've been uh, presenting every Wednesday night, and and you know when you look at what we're we're showing in November, it's a nice, it's it's an interesting kind of shift from the more um, kind of standard Hollywood fare to these kind of weird um, shifts that the studio goes through, that, which really reflect the kind of instability that it's going through as it's as it's kind of falling apart. Mm-hmm. So that's RKO. Um, we've got uh, your your you've got a program coming up with the. Uh, Medieval Institute, it looks like. Correct. So uh, the Medieval Institute, 
uh, was looking for um, a trilogy with popular appeal, uh, fit within um, the kind of um, open confines of what Medieval Institute sees as applicable to the era. And um, what we were able to come up with is showing uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, and that is uh, now where, I mean, if you think of the Two Towers as the midpoint, mm-hmm. yeah, if you take the average of the years, it's a 15-year retrospective, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which seems, I think, longer because of the Hobbit uh, reboot, I guess, the the Hobbit films that came out in the interim, yeah. as well as its um, kind of permanence on TNT or whatever. Right. Cable. So, but it's great to be able to see it in a theater uh, the way people originally enjoyed it. And so it's been a, a fun collaboration uh, working with Linda Major over there. So. And these are like comfort films for people. I mean, these are, you know, because of that familiarity, that's it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing when you talk about, you know, them airing on television, it's the kind of thing that, you know, when people see it, they just, you know, they'll just have it on because there's just a, that kind of familiarity with the films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and, and interesting, it feeds into, uh, some of the ideas that we're, we're going to talk about at the end of our podcast today. Right. Films comfort. we watch with our families. <laughs> comfort. So, comfort films. And so, and then um, alongside that, uh, we have three National Theater Live uh, performances that are happening this month. One of them, we are cross-pollinating with our uh, Sunday Family Film Series. Uh, this actually has a different pricing structure from the other films. Uh, but we're showing Peter Pan, uh, Sunday at Noon. Uh, they're also doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, with with um, Imelda Staunton. Imelda Staunton, yeah. She's popping up in all of these. Yeah. Or a lot of a lot of the National Theater productions. Um, so she is playing Elizabeth Taylor's role. Mm-hmm. Um, and Martha. Martha. Jo- George and Martha. I was trying to think of the... Martha. Right. <laughs> and then lastly, we have uh, the Stephen Sondheim musical Follies. Um, Which also has Imelda Staunton. I believe is she? She's, yes, she's, that's what I'm saying. She's everywhere. She's, you know, it's that it's that Harry Potter, uh, uh, you know, typecasting. She's trying to break through. So yeah, she's in. We've got her in, you know, intense drama and Sondheim musical, right? Yeah, <laughs> both poles. Yeah. Um, so that's what we have uh, from National Theater Live. We actually don't have a Met performance uh, this month. Okay. Um, on top of that, uh, we have. Uh, Thinking of live performances, uh, we have, uh, in looking at Thanksgiving films, uh, we're showing The Last Waltz, Mm -hmm. which is Martin Scorsese's documentary about the band, The Bands, Mm -hmm. uh, final concert in which I think everyone who was still around for the mid-'70s who was famous and a great musician performed at. So that is another live performance type uh, yeah. screen that we'll be showing. We're going to show that right the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. As, Which is perfect. As it was filmed Thanksgiving 1976. Yep. yep. And then do you know why? I, I actually don't know. Why there was a two-year gap between... How long it took to get released. Yeah, yeah. there's the backstory on which I haven't read it. I haven't read into it in a while. I, th- I It could just be that Scorsese was working on other he was projects. Busy. And, yeah. um, cause he was busy. Because if you look at what he's making at that point, that's 76 is when Taxi Driver comes out. And then I'm guessing it's probably probably because of um, New York, New York, which came out the following year, right? Which was 
you know, kind of his his attempt to do a big Hollywood musical that just completely overtook his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so it took a while to get uh, to get the footage together for the Last Waltz. But it's I think it's one of the best things he did in the seventies, and it's it's a film that I've gone back to many many times. Uh, it's a I'll, I'll I'll say a little bit more about it later, but. Um, but it's 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 a film that I think captures all of these artists kind of at their peak, um, and uh, and it's in in very effectively uses the live footage from the show with the staged footage of them you know performing in a in a soundstage specifically for the film, mm-hmm. um, kind of inter, inter, interweaves that really effectively, and then the interview footage with them is just they are just the coolest guys in the world. So, <laughs> and they're all and it's like you know you watch them in the interview footage it's like oh why are they breaking up they, ju- they just they because they're cool they yeah, know when to so stop cool. yeah that's true that's what makes you cool yeah, so. um, then as in terms of World Fair mm-hmm. uh, we have some interesting films from different countries uh, we have uh, by way of a Spanish director um, a French film uh, called The Death of Louis XIV um, one of my favorite movies to come out in, well, I guess it was technically a 2016 release, mm-hmm. um, but one of my favorite titles of this year. Yeah. Uh, and it is, um, I, I think it's kind of Amadeus, like on like 0.25 speed. <laughs> Just That's right. Slow you, it real down. This is like, if you want to slow down our podcast, you can get a sense of that. Yeah. You can do that with your, I think you can do that with your iPhone where you slow us down so you really understand what we're saying. But yeah, it is that because it, it's, it's funny. I was really baffled by this film when I saw it. Um, I saw it last year at a film festival um, and I had heard about it and kind of knew what I was getting into. Um, which You're is, getting into watching Louis the Fourteenth dive gangrene for two hours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, so I got, I got that, but I wasn't quite sure, you know, how yeah. do you even – how do you even make sense of it? And then yeah. I, and then, and when I, and so I was kind of lost in terms of what things to kind of grasp onto when I was seeing it. But then I was, I was looking at footage of it and I really want to go back to it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, which is surprising. I would think, you know, if you struggle with the film the first time, you just, you're like, oh, well, I struggled with that. I'm not going to re-engage it. But, but now that I've kind of looked at more of the footage, again, I'm, I'm really eager to kind of re-engage with that. It's incredibly painterly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a lot of big wig work with <laughs> candles. So you spend a lot of the film worried yeah. that people are gonna uh, have they their use hair. They use the night. eyes, the the eye pieces in the in the trailer. Right, yeah. uh, and I mean the it's incredibly humbling to see the well one of the most powerful and wealthiest men of his time be felled by something that would be so easy to correct now. And so the mortality of it is, is very humbling and placing and ends up being sweet. I thought, yeah. And a lot of good eating. (laughs) There's a lot of like bed eating in a messy way. I don't know, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the film. And then uh, from Chile, we have Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, new film, Endless Poetry. Mm -hmm which is kind of his cinema paradiso, mm-hmm. I'd say. It's autobiographical. Right. It's still surreal. It's not as surreal. It's, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, he casts a relative as himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, some of, the, some of the wackiness of his youth is gone. Yeah. Um, but 
still plenty, plenty, plenty out there mm-hmm. uh, for people who who like his previous work. And um, we have um, uh, also um, from oh sorry I I lost where I was. Uh, we have from Germany, Switzerland, mm-hmm. uh, the Divine Order, which is a film about. Uh, the women's suffrage movement right, in Switzerland. Is because this is one of the amazing facts. You ask people when did women get the right to vote in Switzerland, and you tell them 1971. Mm-hmm. It's always a mind blower. Because right, uh, be- you would think of Switz. I mean, I don't know. There's a sort of maybe a, more of a cultural perception that Switzerland's a little ahead of the game on this stuff. Right. It's the it's the <laughs> Scandinavian. I know they're not Scandinavia, but that like Scandinavian like oh well they're just right. are de facto more progressive than us right. because it's Switzerland. Right. Uh, but it took uh, an incredibly long time for them to get to the vote. Uh, and uh, it was only decided by men going to the polls. Mm-hmm. They didn't obviously have a uh, a mechanism in place for them to engage the democratic process at that point. And so that is part of our Because Gender series, mm-hmm. uh, which we pull together uh, with gender programs at IUSB St. Mary's and here at Notre Dame. Um, and I think that will be a very interesting film uh, for people who both like period pieces and who like political dramas. Um, and as we're coming up on kind of the, uh, albeit a quiet election day, mm-hmm. it's good to have the polls. That's kind of right. Back Remember in mind. that there are still election days happening, mm-hmm. especially in Virginia and other places, but actually everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have three directors who are coming to campus. Oh, great. Uh, throughout the month. Uh, one, uh, we have Chico Pereira yes. coming in to uh, discuss his film Don Quixote. Uh, I, think it's, I think you're supposed to pronounce it like Don Quixote because it's even though it's – so they spell it Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's definitely a reference to, um, uh, to Don Quixote, which we've talked about this film or at least I talked about this in a previous podcast. Uh, this, was, this was one of my favorite films that I saw in – Berlin? Yeah, it was in Berlin, mm-hmm. which is where I, I got to meet Chico, the director, a uh, really great guy. Follows the journey of his kind of eccentric uncle um, who wants to get to the U.S. to go walk the Trail of Tears. Uh, he's living in Spain. I'm sorry. Yes, he wants to get to he's, – he's trying to get to the U.S. So he um, he's trying to get to a port in Spain where he can uh, take a container or, or, or go across – uh, across the ocean in a, in a shipping container along with his donkey um, and his dog, who's really endearing in the film. And it just kind of follows his, uh, the journey before the journey, essentially, is what the film kind of sets up, if that doesn't reveal too much. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's a film that when I went into it, this was, again, you know, expectations mean everything. I, ex- I assumed, I, w- I wasn't clear that it was a documentary see the film and I didn't know that it was the director's uncle so I just kind of went with the kind of narrative aspect of, of this character and what he was experiencing um, it seems to have a real lost and beautiful vibe do you remember that yeah from absolutely absolutely yeah same, so same well, just that, that naturalism I mean it, you know it's documentary so it, it, it has but even but, but it's also right what's the, that not fabulous the way Lost Beautiful. It not um, how not can as you explicitly, not be if you're not like appropriating Don Quixote, right? Though. Not as explicitly, but I think there there are definitely moments that have a kind of even though you know we're watching an actual journey unfold, mm-hmm. you you see there there are kind of I, I don't want to go so far as to call it magical realism, but there is 
Um, there are things that kind of surprise you in that process that are just, you know, parts of, of, of this character's natural world. And, and largely because you become so invested with his kind of unique um, take on, on the world that, that he's living in. You, you, really, you really become invested in him as a character. And he's, I, I just think he's great. I wish we could get him here, but uh, we'll get Chico to talk about him. So, and then who's our, who's our next filmmaker? Uh, we have uh, the Little Brothers, uh, John and Ken Little, mm-hmm. who will be coming in for a screening of More Than a Word. Uh, this is a project through Multicultural Student Programs and Services. Uh, specific- specifically, uh, superstar Yvette Rodriguez uh, has been championing this. Right. And MSPS serves Native American students in Notre Dame in an allyship capacity, and they celebrate Native American Heritage Month every year. And uh, the film came recommended to MSPS from one of the students uh, who is from NASAND, which is the Native American Student Association at Notre Dame, uh, who saw it at at a national conference on race and ethnicity. And then uh, they worked to get uh, the brothers here uh, who are from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And the film is about uh, the use of Native American names and iconography in um, mainly and primarily athletics, um, and they zone in on uh, the football team from Washington, D.C., and talk about that particular mascot, and it's used as something that could be applicable to the various mascots that you're going to see uh, throughout the United States, um, and just the history of how Native Americans have been marginalized um, in oftentimes violent ways uh, throughout uh, not only the history of the United States, but even the colonization of the Americas. Mm-hmm. So that would be a wonderful evening. That's great. And then lastly, uh, and like I said, the directors will be on hand to talk about, you know, not only the film, but the politics of the film and uh, where they're coming from and where I think the movement is going. And then lastly, we have Abby Reese, who's coming in. Uh, this is a a, a joint effort with the Department of Philosophy uh, to screen her film Chosen, uh, which is about uh, nuns who live in a monastery. Mm-hmm. Um, a monastery may not be correct, but I believe that's I believe that's the term. Convent. Uh, convent. <laughs> um, I'm not. I don't even think they're discalced, but they are. Uh, it, it's a it's a hermited or cloistered oh, okay. group. Okay. Uh, and so they. Uh, actually allowed GoPros into the convent to talk about themselves because they're not interacting with the world, but yeah. they're willing to discuss themselves. Where are they where are they where do they live? Do you know? Um in a convent? No, no, but where <laughs> I don't I, I, I don't know actually. I don't know. So we'll um, learn more. We'll learn we'll learn more. Yeah. We'll learn more as we as we show the film. And that's a really and that's a you know, mediating that relationship had to be very difficult and tricky. And I think that it's very um, emblematic of a lot of relationships between documentary filmmakers and their subjects. So I think that is a good screening uh, for students who are looking to make documentaries, people who are interested to understand how those relationships are negotiated, both in real life and then in the editing room as well. Um, right. Lastly, one last thing to note, yeah. uh, we have uh, the, the South Bend Blaniacs. Um, yeah, so that, this is where I want to make sure you didn't overlook this because there's so many things that I'm excited about in November. I can't tell you how excited I am. 
you have booked <laughs> for, Waiting for Guffman. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, we have a, a group here in South Bend that will be giving it the Rocky Horror treatment. The Blaniacs. The Blaniacs. The South Bend South Blaniacs. Bend Blaniacs. Uh, and this is a real first ever, uh, not only for South Bend, but through our rather cursory searching online. It uh, hasn't been done uh, before. That's great. So it's a chance to, I guess, literally write the script on how this might be done and revisit a film which now 20 years on uh, still really holds up oh, uh, remarkably well, especially yeah. if you have ever like walked by a civic theater. <laughs> uh, it radiates a lot of the energy <laughs> and uh, the hopes and the aspirations and yes. the disappointments that you find within there. So Yeah, no, we're extremely excited for this. So that and others, you can go ahead and find online. Great. Um, and it's a great. Mo- I mean, not because I was about to say, oh, Waiting for Guffman is my favorite film, but then there's The Last Waltz, and there's Stromboli, and there's Best Years of Our Lives, and there's Louis the Fourteenth. There's a there's so much Don Quixote. Yeah. Even with the the Thanksgiving break. Yeah. The month really came together well. Yeah. So. No, it's a great. It's a really strong lineup. Mm-hmm. So. And speaking of Thanksgiving. Yes. Um, every year. Yes. Uh, people gather around the table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they gather around their Thank TVs. Thank God there's not a big election this year to, to process. So instead we can just think about movies, right? Yeah. Well, I suppose <laughs> movies are a really common like way not to have to talk about politics That's on true. every holiday. That's true. Uh, not just 2016. Yeah. Uh, but one thing Ted and I were talking about is films that are, uh, well, the best films from... Uh, or for family gatherings, uh, which is very personalized, uh, and just our collective memories there. So yeah. in our monthly uh, top three segment. Yeah, exactly. Because now it's now it's uh, it's no longer a codified. <laughs> we're uh, we're going to se- This is our second try at this, so so bear with us. So uh, running through your three titles. Yeah. Um, are you going to take the easy way out and go with The Last Waltz as one of them? Of course I am. Okay. That's why I wanted to come back to it. <laughs> okay, well. Can uh, I, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell yes, you why. So I have So I have a beloved um, aunt who is, um, who's actually, who grew up, uh, we grew up with, we grew up listening to The Last Waltz kind of all the time uh, because she was a huge fan of the band, still is. Um and she, uh, she's uh, just in terms of family dynamics. She was closer in age to uh, my brothers and sisters than she was than she is to my to my mother. Uh, ah, one of those stragglers. Sister. Yes, exactly. I'm going to talk about straggling. I, I was going to say this is this is Herbst like uh, in its uh, family structure. So she was often uh, assigned to babysit uh, my brothers and sisters and I, and gave us extent. Uh, uh, Extended exposure to the last waltz throughout the nineteen. Throughout, well, I guess it wouldn't have been throughout the seventies because it didn't come out until seventy eight. It felt like it was all through the seventies, <laughs> but um, she was always a big fan. Always wanted us to watch it, um, and it just became just a nice point of connection. Introdu- you know, kind of uh, for for me and I think for my siblings, kind of introduced us to a lot of music that had a lasting kind of influence uh, for us. Um, and um, just always kind of, you know, always just worked as a as a as just a, a film that kind of brought everybody together. So um, it was it was it was also a film that we would see a lot because it used to be one of the selections for PBS pledge drives. 
So um, they would use this a lot to to raise money for the local PBS station. Huh. So we'd hear. So that would be. I think that was. I feel like that was the first time I got to see it before, because that because it would have even been before you know we had a VCR to watch it on, on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it definitely. Uh, and I and I never actually you know despite the obvious I never made the connection with Thanksgiving because I don't think it was something we specifically targeted to watch around Thanksgiving even though it might have been used you know for, during those pledge drives in, in, around Thanksgiving but um, I never I never directly associated it with the holiday even though that's when it takes place but it's just such a great film um, and it's uh, especially for you know folks who love kind of connections between film and popular music this film. This film just brings it all together really nicely. So, so that's one for me. How about you? Uh, well, before we launch into my three, I think it's yeah. worth noting that you know, as someone who has a decade gap mm-hmm. between my siblings and I, like we didn't watch movies collectively, mm-hmm. and by the time they had graduated and gone to school, we also had satellite dish receivers, which allowed every TV to be watching something else. So my mom could be watching The Days of Wine and Roses, Mm -hmm. and my dad could be watching The Outlaw Outlaw Josie Wales, Mm -hmm. and I can be watching Troop Beverly Hills, Mm -hmm. and we're all all happy (laughs) in our own little world. Um, And really, the only thing we watched collectively tended to be Jeopardy, (laughs) followed by the nightly news. Uh, But... A couple of films that I think are uh, good family films, and I can explain why, as well as personal family films. Uh, the first one is The Great Outdoors mm-hmm. uh, because it it deals with families coming together, like a Christmas vacation uh, type style, yeah. um, and the riffs that come when you have an annoying aunt and uncle mm-hmm. and their twins as well as internal family strife. And I think it's very cathartic to see, you know, those strained relationships and open up the conversation while also being about being on vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, so The Great Outdoors happens to be the one that we saw in the theaters while on vacation that was very well received. I think any John Candy film, though, yeah. <laughs> I'm <running through> them <laughs> in my mind, like if it's summer rental or whatever, like they all kind of fit that yeah. potential mode. Well, and it's it, it's you're also like identifying these you know films that kind of give projections of families, whether they're you know kind of absurdist projections of families or mm-hmm. you know families that actually you can relate to because you right. see kind of versions of the people that you know in your life um, on screen, and that yeah. can be that can be you know kind of therapeutic. Or yeah, <laughs> every man, father, John yeah. Candy. Yeah. Um, Cool wife, normally, uh-huh. right. <laughs> like far too attractive for John Candy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's pretty much every '80s movie. Where, yeah, I think you know, so. Kind of some schlubby guy with, with you know, the most beautiful actress they could cast. I think that's every movie. Actually, right. I, don't <laughs> that, I don't think we aged out of that. That's true. Um, and so your uh, your second, yeah. So my second. Um, so I, I've been going back and forth about this. So um, in the era of the VCR. Um, I can always remember my sister would obsessively, maybe obsessively is too strong, but she would record a lot of films off of uh, cable television in the 80s. And um, she was she was a big, uh, and she was very efficient and very practical. So she would uh, maximize space on the VHS tape. So she would always record things in EP mode. 
So we had these <laughs> we had these stacks of uh, videotapes that had three films. They each right. had three films on them because you could fit an EP tape. You can is like six hours in length, so you could fit um, so you could fit three uh, you could fit three total films on it. So um, so there's I could I could draw any one of there was probably from those from that tape collection. There's probably about fifteen titles. I could I could probably reference any one of those fifteen. Um, as you know, as you know, a film that that meant something. But I'll go to uh, kind of the again a, a nice kind of warm blanket of a film, which is you know we're talking about comfort films, or at least what was a comfort film. And uh, I'm gonna go with The Big Chill, uh, which um, interestingly was one of the I think that might have been one of the first R-rated movies that I saw in um, in the movie theaters. Uh huh. Um, it's here a few uh, uh, a, a few, few good, good men. men. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, because it was and it had to be because it had to be a prestige film, right? right? So exactly. Was, um, and it was you know it's a film about these uh, college friends for those unfamiliar with it who gather uh, when one of their friends uh, kills himself. Uh, played by Kevin Costner, although not seen in the film except for a couple of you know, quick shots of the corpse at the beginning of the movie. And it's all about how they revisit their past as. Um, kind of 60s radicals, uh, or varying levels of 60s radicals, and how they've kind of settled into becoming um, 80s yuppies. Um, of course, famous, again, you know, film and music is always yeah. a big driver, uh, certainly for my, you know, introductory film experiences. Um, and uh, it features a really great um, uh, Motown soundtrack. And it was also around the time of Motown's 25th anniversary where Michael Jackson does his famous, introduces the moonwalk to the world for the first time. So there was a kind of moment that this connected with of that um, 60s nostalgia kind of hitting its peak. I don't know why that spoke to, you know, me as a, you know, as a preteen in the 1980s, but, <laughs> but but there was something there. And But I think also because it was a film that, you know, was sophisticated but not so sophisticated that um, that it was something, you know, our, our family kind of felt, you know, comfortable watching as a group. I've gone back to it and it's it, it's not as strong. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate as strongly as it did back then, but there is always something kind of sentimental about it as, mm-hmm. you know, this film that kind of brought us together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in kind of a fun way. Well, so. yeah, the music is what, I mean, even if you have kids who don't get it, right? they can still watching enjoy like, the music. Or... Well, and it was like these, and, and, and also the projections of, you know, you talk about the projections of family members. It was like, I wanted All my, your aunts and uncles. Well, no, I wanted my <laughs> parents to be cool, like, you know, Kevin, like Kevin Klein and Glenn Close, you know, right. who would just, you know, who would you know, dance and sing while they, you know, clean the dishes, uh-huh. uh, which was not something my parents did in the um, they did many other good things, but um, but the you know just you want that that sort of idealized vision of of who your family could be. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that uh, in that. So, um, well, wait, do they? Does anyone in the Big Chill have children? Oh yeah, yeah. The kids have all, but they've been you know conveniently sent away because the they're weekend. not in it, right? No, because there's the whole That's joke that Jeff Goldblum sleeping in the kids, right? He's sleeping in the pilot's bed, or the, so the you're also getting to see airplane. your parents when they're around their friends without kids, which exactly. is something you don't get to see exactly. as a kid, yeah. Because yeah. by the virtue of you being there, you ruin it. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. Although, that. yeah. Well, we could get into that a little bit. But, you know, like <laughs> right. You would. My parents would have parties where you'd, you know, they'd gather in the living room and you get it. You get a glimpse of that. But it. Uh-huh. But it is. It's kind of like that little glimpse expanded over, yeah. you know, over a two-hour film. And how cool is this that they're, you know, spending a weekend together. So, 
anyway, so that's so that's 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 a that's a definitely a comfort film in in in, in terms of those kinds of connections. So what do you have for your second? Film? Uh, I have a music film as mm-hmm. well. Um, I, I couldn't figure out one or two, so I just go with both. Uh, Sister Act one and two. Oh boy. I've just my daughter was just in a production of Sister Act, so we've been we've been living in it um, in a different way. But go mm-hmm. on. Uh, so this is a uh, this is that moment in the early '90s where uh, you know, I'm still in elementary school, uh, but get to see something made for a little bit older audience, and everyone comes out of the movie theater happy. Mom, dad, me, uh, in no part, a small part because it's taking something that we all go to weekly that's oftentimes serious and or could be even dull if you're a kid, uh, and that's church, mm-hmm. and making it fun um, and getting to have that collectively be an enjoyable experience, especially from people from, like, the Iowan German Catholic mm-hmm. background, which is we, never, we didn't have a Hail Holy Queen Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, done to Motown type music uh, very often. So that was so that was a film that would again appear on TV a lot, and so it was very easy to just watch until there was a song that you liked, and then be like, oh, okay, I've had my fill, and then mm-hmm. turn it. So that was yeah. a that was a classic. And um, whether or not it holds up, I would say Sister Act Two holds up much more. Than one because you got Lauren Hill. You got Lauren Hill. <laughs> um, you have a really good. Um, well, they're in competition, which is mm-hmm. where, like, those movies should go in some ways. It's like, okay, well, let's ram the arts into Ordinal, who's better than the other person, just right. so we can have a, a stronger narrative device. So the too, punch- too much origin story on the first. Just, we, need, right. we need to get to that. We need we need more we need more nuns singing. I just need a immediate <laughs> res start with them like singing. The song. How did we get here? Yeah, who's this Whoopi? Exactly. Um, and your peak Whoopi though, peak Whoopi, right? Because this right, is she's Whoopi. rolling off a ghost. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. That's true. Still, yeah, yeah. She's still. and this is I think when she's probably her most commercially successful, and then yeah, having just won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. So, go Whoopi. Um, we won't talk about what happens after that because it just gets it gets really ugly after the sister act comes out. So. Sorry, but, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> what was the one with Ted, what was their Ted Danson movie? <laughs> Made in Man America. America. Made in America. Yeah, Oof. he eats too Oof. much wasabi. It, it warned me because <laughs> I didn't have access to wasabi in Lamar's Iowa. Oh my gosh! And then when I learned about it in my like early thirties, <laughs> I was like, oh, don't eat it like Ted Danson. I'll, That's right. All right, so choking. so since you know, so the parameters that I'm working from is movies that I watched with you know my uh, my family members, not my current family, you know, not my wife and kids now, because we watch different things. Which maybe that's a topic for another podcast. But the ones that I kind of that that have this kind of comfort food quality to them because we grew up watching these films. And weirdly, you know, I'll, I'll go with another early '80s film. Uh, very melodramatic, kind of hits all different notes. Uh, we'll go with Terms of Endearment. Holy. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, I believe I saw on a date uh, in junior high school. Oh, my god! I know, I know. Which was, which you know, was it, well, it was a good date movie because you, you take it's your date. It's a weepy. It's a weepy. You, you get to comfort your, your date unless you were weeping, which, um, you know, I, didn't, I don't think I was sophisticated enough to. 
to process all of that. But um, you could comfort, you know, your significant other and uh, help them through the experience. But interestingly, it's a film that, you know, we would we would watch repeatedly in my household growing up because I think because it's one of these films that, you know, despite the fact that it is, it, it, yes, it's a definite weepy, it's got a little bit of everything mm-hmm. um, in terms of comedy, in terms of, you know, melodrama. Um, it's got a range of, of actors. So you've got cute kids. You've got, you know, people who are... It sticks pretty close to the James L. Brooks formula. Yeah, a little bit of everything. <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> right. But... Uh, and definitely, and, and I we always joke that you know, in terms of you know projections of family members, um, Shirley MacLaine's scenes in the hospital where she screams at the nurses to you know give her daughter the shot when she's in pain. This is this is we see this. Most of my family members would agree that this is somehow a, a, an exact recreation of how my mother would behave if any of us were ever hospitalized. That she would be you know barraging the hospital staff to just you know give the the most uh, immediate <laughs> service to us to help us uh, get through our pain. So um, so that's – and that, you know, and I think there's just a lot of points of identification. That's another thing of, you know, you can watch these things with a lot of different people because, you know, different people are, are clicking with different characters, you know, depending on where they are in their life. Maybe you're, you know, maybe you're finding something in John Lithgow, the, the boring guy from Iowa, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, or you're, uh, you know, or you're, or you're more in the, you know, Jack Nicholson, of course, in this very showy role as an astronaut, um, which was always kind of fun to watch. So, yeah, so that's 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 another one for us. So, where do you where do you land on your last? Uh, well, I go back to the again the early nineties. <laughs> I tried to find. I something get the early eighties. Like, you get the early nineties. Something. Well, I think it maybe stops like after you can age out of these films. Yeah. In some ways, and yeah. maybe the window. At least I think the window is probably around thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. Uh, but the last one for me, um, which I'll bring up uh, because of the Winter Olympics that are uh, about to come up, would be the Cutting Edge. Oh boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> deep cut. <Yeah. laughs> the deep cutting. With that, that topic. Yeah. Got a deep cut. Uh, but it works because, again, this is a mom, dad for me, um, and then me go to the film. Because you got the hockey dad mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be watching some romance movie who turns into a sports movie. And then you got Moira Kelly. Uh uh, she, she, she. I've never seen this movie. Is she an ice skater in the film? Or yeah, she a, they okay. both are. They're a pair. They're a couple. Oh, they're a pair. Okay, that's a couple right. skate, but they come from different worlds. Oh, okay. so he's a hockey player to start. He's a hockey player a... who takes up figure skating. Gotcha. So he's the dad that's been dragged to this mm-hmm. skating rom com. Yeah. Uh, but gives it some life, and she's a, a frosty, um, upper class. A figure skater mm-hmm. uh, who withers potential partners, um, but the guy from the hockey world, DB Sweeney, doesn't know any better, yeah. and so they join forces. And she relaxes. He tightens up his life, and they get to the Olympics. And um, well, I won't throw any spoilers out there, but again, when you have uh, there's. I think in all of these films, very clear gender roles, mm-hmm. very clear familial dynamics, and different worlds meeting, which if you're going to have, uh, you know, a cacophony of viewpoints coming into a film, makes it easy for people to settle in 
and feel comfortable with people with whom they normally don't watch movies and then therefore have to see the film on that person and think about what they're thinking about. So it'd be interesting. Uh, I know a film we're, we're both looking forward to coming up is um, I, Tanya. Mm-hmm. See if there are echoes of the cutting edge in, in I, Tanya. I think um, <laughs> when uh, Pyeongchang comes around, uh-huh. I think an I, Tanya cutting edge double feature. There you go. It might need to be. It might need That'll to happen. be. All right. Well, those are some ideas for you know things that at least mean something to, meant something to us at at some stage in our lives. But you know, it's interesting. You know, it is interesting. You say you know where the cutoff point of you know of thirteen or fourteen years old because it is you know it's kind of after that where you start to you get your own more particular interests. And of course, we talked about when we were thinking about this idea of well, you don't you know do we have this as much now because we're all so diffuse in terms of our screens and how we watch things. That it's harder to come together around around the set, you mm-hmm. know, to watch to watch a film all together. I know, you know, I do know some families who are really invested in you know family movie night, kind of once a week to to try to recreate that experience. Mm-hmm. But it's a harder thing to do. Well, um, and there aren't modern day. I mean, they push really hard for a Christmas story to be the Sound of Music, mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments, a Wizard of Oz, but but even the approach is will, different because right. because Christmas Story is on you know all the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas The Sound of Music, you had to wait, when we were growing up anyway, you had to wait to see it that one time each year, you know, before before you had cable, mm-hmm. before you had, um, you know, VHS, um, so that you could watch things repeatedly. So, um, But those things are still, I mean, I think it, it's interesting to see how those how those kinds of experiences evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, great. Well, yeah, so, um, you know, if you want to, if hopefully you can take have some takeaways from this podcast of films to watch with your folks, um, or maybe it reminds you of some films that uh, that you're that, that you know kind of have that kind of sentimental value for you. So hopefully, hopefully it brings up some good ideas there. But, um, that'll wrap us up for this time, <laughs> right? I think you have like the run on the the cutting edge DVDs at Target right now. I know. Like, you, that be oh, funny? I gotta save Thanksgiving. Right, I'm gonna exactly. go get some cutting edge. Exactly. <laughs> then you know we're having an impact. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll be checking the Amazon sales. So. All right. Well, thanks, Ricky. Thank you, Ted.